Okay, and then I'm going to have Lindsay stay with me because uh, she's going to read the first passage today. I do want to just, on behalf of the two of us, you can hop up here, um, just say thank you. It's been a year for us that we've been here this week. And so this has been a blast for us. It's gone very quickly. Um, but what a gift this year has been to not just us, but to our kids as well. And so thank you for being a part of this journey with us. For those of you who are previously a part of this church, you've been very gracious and so welcoming to us. So thank you. Uh, you've made this transition much easier on us because of that grace and patience and love for us. And then for those of you who've jumped into this uh, really with us over the last year, we're just thankful that you're here and, and so appreciate you being a part of this season. So Genesis chapter two is where we'll begin. Okay. Genesis two eighteen. And Jehovah God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground, Jehovah God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every leading creature, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for man, there was not found a help meet for him. And Jehovah God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh and said thereof. And the rib which Jehovah God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked the man and the wife, and were not ashamed. Okay, now flip to Ephesians. Thank you, Lindsay. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear or the reverence of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing by the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she shall be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I, sp I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, for all of us, I think, who are married, uh, we came to a couple of realizations pretty quick, probably as newlyweds, and maybe it took some of us a little longer than others, but we started to realize pretty quickly that our, our partners are selfish people. And then our partners took the time to point out our own brokenness and selfishness. And then after much thought and careful observation, we, we came to the conclusion that our spouses were the ones, though, who were more broken and more selfish than we are, obviously. 
You know, in James chapter 4, it starts with a statement. It says, where do quarrels and fights? Some of your translations might say uh, wars and fights, but it's talking about relational conflict more than it is like global nation against nation conflict. Where do uh, wars, fights, quarrels among you come from? And then James answers the rhetorical question by saying, they come from within you. In fact, he says they're motivated from your own selfish desires. He says the reason that you have these moments of conflict in your life is that we, we can't just point at other people and in this context point to our spouse and say, well, it's because of them and their selfishness. James says, no, you have to look in a mirror and recognize it's your selfish desires, he said, that are at war within your bodies. That's what causes this. Now, all of us, I think, as we walked into a marriage, we all knew that marriage would bring us into conflict. The thing that I think surprised most of us is that it brought us more into conflict with ourselves than it did with conflict with our spouse. Think about that. It's that all of a sudden we're faced with the reality of our own brokenness and our own selfishness inside of a marriage. That's what more, is more shocking and more conflicting than even having to deal with someone else's brokenness. Because in my marriage, yes, I saw Lindsay's brokenness as we began to make a life together, but I was on a collision course with my own selfishness when we began to cohabitate and try to make a life together. You see, the, the problem is that when sin entered the world, what, what happened to a marriage that God created as this beautiful thing that would have no conflict inside of it, all of a sudden, uh, it left me incapable, sin did, it distorted the, the good world that God made, even a good gift like a marriage. It makes me incapable of completing my wife, and it made the process of companionship a very challenging one, to say the least. And that's kind of where we left off last week. You, you might remember we've been talking through just a few things about the topic of marriage, and we started with, and I'll just give you the, the handful of them all together right now, and so I encourage you to listen. We started with the foundation of marriage, and the foundation of marriage is a covenant. But then we talked also about the priority of marriage, that it has to be emphasized and take the place of prominence and priority in your life. That's what Genesis narrative, that's what it presents to us. But then we started talking about the purpose of a marriage. What's the purpose of it? Not my own satisfaction or happiness, but we talked about companionship and completeness. Today, we're also going to throw in the process of marriage, that it's going to be done, it's going to be developed, it's going to grow through self-sacrificial love. And then we'll finish by just commenting on the power of marriage, and the power of marriage is the gospel itself. Now, marriage is something for sure that God loves. It's not just something that he gave as a gift to the first humans who walked the earth. Remember when he himself came and walked the earth. This is something that he he went and celebrated publicly. His first miracle, in fact, was at a wedding feast. When you think about it, your Bible begins and ends with a wedding, beginning with Adam and Eve and then ending with the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the marriage is something also that the scriptures give us so much instruction about. And we've reached the topic of marriage because in Mark 10, you remember, there are people who came to Jesus pushing on him, asking him about the, the topic or or the, the problem of divorce in the, in the culture. And so Jesus responded not just by talking about divorce, but then he began talking and reaffirming what Genesis said about marriage itself. And that's how we landed on this topic. And we agreed last week, because Jesus was answering the questions about divorce, that God's original de design of marriage didn't even need to address the possibility of divorce. Sin entered the world, though, and changed all of that. 
And so as Jesus will answer them in Mark 10, he quotes from Genesis 2 and makes it clear that the bond that a husband and wife are building is more than a partnership or more than just some working agreement that when two people come together, they create a whole new entity. They become one flesh is what scripture teaches us. And if that's true, then the choice to divorce is more than just a simple legal choice to end an agreement. Then if that's true, it's it's the death of an entity is what happens in a divorce. And if you ask anyone who's been impacted by a divorce or even someone who's been through the pain that's caused by infidelity, I'd bet that that would be the word that they would use in describing what they went through in that season, that they would describe it as death, that a part of them they felt like died in that process. Now, last week, what we discussed was Jesus' affirmation of Genesis and what it taught us about marriage. And we, this is such a huge topic and a lot of fun to talk about that I'm not going to do a bunch of review. And so if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Also, I give a bunch of disclaimers. I don't have time to do that again. I love you. I care about you. I do want the, those disclaimers mattered, but I'm not going to reenter all of them. I will just say this. I'm not approaching this as an expert. I'm approaching this as a practitioner. I'm learning what it looks like. Lindsay and I are growing together. We've been married almost 15 years. I told you last week, in my mind, we're about a quarter of the way through our journey. And we've had really hard seasons and really good seasons in that 15 years. But it's such a big and important topic, marriages, that we're just going to jump in. I'll quickly review, and then we're just going to march forward. Remember, Genesis itself introduces us to the idea of the the whole foundation of what a marriage is. The foundation of marriage is a covenant. Remember, it says that you will leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife is what Genesis says. You'd be joined together to your wife. It's a covenantal term. It's speaking of a public legal agreement. Remember, marriage is not just an act of love or or you don't just get married to express the love that you have in that moment. Marriage is the promise of future love. It's a covenant that you're entering into. So hear me on this. The foundation of covenantal love that you and I are asked to embrace is a willingness to put someone else's needs ahead of my own. It's not a feeling that I have that will lead me to an action. If that was the case, if that's what love was inside this covenant, then after a few months or maybe it'd be a few years for some of you, you'd be sitting there just waiting to feel good vibes or good feelings again about your spouse that would then drive you and compel you into action. But it's the opposite. What scripture teaches us about love is that love is a commitment and a choice and that feelings follow actions. Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if I enter into a covenantal relationship with my bride, I'm promising that I will choose love. It's a promise of future love. It's a promise to choose the action of love for me, believing that the feelings of love will follow the action. Now, this leaves us, in a sense, with a bit of a litmus test. And the litmus test is this. Do you gauge the depths of love within your marriage based on what you're getting out of it? Because if you do, then we may need to reclassify what we think of as the love in our marriage as more of emotional hunger than it is real true love. Because the way to know how much you really love someone, what what the depths of your love really are, is based on what you're willing to give, not what you're able to extract or to get. The problem for us as humans is we fight internally against the desire in those moments to withdraw when we're not getting what we want or need from our spouse. But covenantal love is a commitment to do the opposite. 
because it's believing that God is designed so that feelings follow actions of love. So we talked about the foundation. It's a covenantal love. But we talked then about also the priority of marriage. Remember he says, or God says in the garden, that you will leave your father and mother. It's speaking about a departure from your family of origin. A departure not just physically or emotionally or financially, but philosophically to do that, to leave your family of origin. Now, we can make this covenant. When we do, when we make this covenant, we must make the choice to to leave behind that family of origin to be free of their power and influence that they've had in our lives while we lived in their home so that we can begin to build our new home and life together. And to leave father and mother, it's speaking about you reorienting life. It's a commitment. I will reorient and reprioritize my life around this new covenant that I've entered into with my spouse that now becomes my top priority, second only to my commitment to Jesus that will give me the power I will need to live selflessly, which means that no person, no friendship, no job, no endeavor, nothing and no one can take the top place of priority, not even your children, over your relationship with your spouse. So the foundation, it's a covenant. And when I catch myself whining about how my marriage is not making me as happy as I wanted it to, and how I'm so frustrated, I have to stop in those moments and remember that I entered a marriage in a covenant, not about what I could give, but about choosing to give, or what I could get, but choosing to give selfless love. That's the foundation. But the priority of marriage is that we reorder our loves, and I don't get to be the judge as, as to whether or not Lindsay and our relationship is the priority. Lindsay gets to be the judge of that for me, and I get to yield and listen to her voice and constantly be reorienting things in our lives in order to keep this the priority. But here's where we left off. We talked just briefly about the purpose. The purpose of marriage is companionship and completeness. So we'll talk about those two things. First, completeness. And then we'll come back to the idea of companionship. When God created Adam, there were these intentional design deficiencies. God intentionally made Adam this way. And remember, this was before the fall. This is before sin entered the world at all and had any impact on the world. God intentionally designed him with deficiencies. Now, here's where we start to understand because it's before the fall. There's a massive difference between... Adam and Eve's union in the garden and Trevor and Lindsay's union outside of, on this side of the garden. For them, the two of them, their relationship kicked off with with sinless, selfless people pairing seamlessly together. And ours began with a honeymoon stretch of naivety as we thought that it was two perfect people who would also seamlessly pair. And then, like many of you, we quickly realized that we are two broken, sin-distorted, selfish people who are messy and broken who would not seamlessly, effortlessly pair together. And I don't know how long they spent time in the garden before sin entered the world and so shifted things, but what I'm confident of is that their union and partnership looked very different in the garden in a sinless world than it did outside of the garden in sinful, broken states. My point in even mentioning this, though, is to tell you that even before the fall, there was design deficiencies, there was a lack in both male and female, in both Adam and in Eve. So in the garden, Eve fit Adam perfectly. Like two pieces of like one of my daughter's little heart charm necklaces. 
that the, the two pieces fit together so perfectly that they were made whole, that their design deficiencies met their match and paired harmoniously together. And when they fit together, they also seamlessly portrayed the image of God, the image of the one that they were made in. They, they let the whole world, all of creation, see what God was like. Now think about this. That leaves me then with an understanding to draw the conclusion that marriage is ultimately a means to an end. If the two of them paired together became a whole picture of the nature and character of God, the one whose, whose image they bore, but they were made partial, needing to be completed by each other, then it's telling me that, that marriage is a means to that end. The grand thing it gave Adam, marriage... Uh, marriage did, Adam and Eve, what it gave them in creation all, of the, all around them was a completed, balanced look at the nature and the character of God. So track with me. Marriage gives opportunity for incompleteness to be completed. Now, we have the tendency, though, to only think of that on a personal and internal level, where I approach my marriage and think, well, Lindsay should make me complete. She should fill my heart. She ought to make me whole. But marriage makes what was incomplete to be complete in the way that it displays God's image and shadow through us as image bearers. But if I'm looking to Lindsay with this massive expectation that, that she as my partner must make me happy and complete and whole, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to crush her under the weight of that expectation under the weight of that pressure that she makes me happy and whole and complete. She's never capable on this side of Eden of carrying that kind of weight and pressure because of sin's presence in her life and in my life. I will never ever complete Lindsay. I will strive instead to complement Lindsay, but my imperfection will leave her wanting and needing a perfect someone, and that's Jesus. However, we together... If we are receiving from Jesus what we need to feel complete and whole and him to begin to heal our brokenness, well, then we together, we can provide as a pair a more whole and complete expression of the nature and character of God as a couple than we ever could have displayed when we were separate from that partnership as just individuals, which means that your spouse is given in your life to reveal some of those design deficiencies. That tells me that once I forgive her for revealing those design deficiencies, that then she can begin to be used by God to heal some of those things, to fill some of those deficiencies, allowing the two of us together to display for the world a more accurate look and depiction of what it looks like to be made in the image of God. That's what it tells me. So hear me on this. Marriage is about completing and depicting God's image as two of us as opposites come together. And it's about the beautiful gift of companionship and friendship while we do that in process together. Because the purpose of marriage, it's about companionship and completeness. We are meant to help to complete a look that the world gets on the image of God as paired up male and female with those design deficiencies that match together well to depict both sides of God's nature and character, because you can look at scripture and see portions of scripture where masculine, quote unquote, masculine things are attributed to him, like his strength, his provision, his protection, but then other things that God will use to self-describe himself that we would classify as feminine things, like him comparing himself to a mother hen. Like him saying, can a nursing mother forget their child? I'll never forget you. Like him even saying that one of his names in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. 
A shad in Hebrew is a breast. He's saying, I am the breasted one. It has nothing to do with anatomy. It was a statement God was making about a nurturing side of his love and his heart and compassion for us. I lack some of those sides of the beauty of the nature and the character of God. Lindsay naturally has some of those sides. So the two of us together, we complete or we, we present a more complete image of who God is and what he's like. Okay, now here's the other thing, though. Not just completeness, we complete an image, but companionship. That's the other side of this. The purpose of marriage is for companionship. Because marriage is about companionship. It's about friendship together. I think then, if it's true that that's what it's about, that every marriage can echo what Adam said when he first laid eyes on Eve. It's something we just read in Genesis chapter 2. He said, waxing very poetically, he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I'd be willing to bet for most of us, we've heard someone teach that passage or quote it to you before, and then they said, you know, I'll give you a loose paraphrase of what Adam said. You know, when he saw Eve, he said, whoa, man, and he gets cheap laughs, and it's really tacky. It's a silly and harmless joke, I get that. However, I think it kind of illustrates sometimes what can be a really shallow view of marriage, where finding a partner is really about finding a sexual counterpart or sexual compatibility, where we're looking for that whoa man moment. We're looking for someone, when we're looking at people and and checking out the market, male and female, when we're looking, we're looking at someone who is attractive to us. We're looking, we're out on a hunt for just a spark. But think about what Adam said. He's not just communicating like jaw drop, wiping the drool from his chin. What he really communicates, though, is that after scouring all of creation, that what he found in Eve was a part of himself. That really, what he says here is that I found myself in you. In your presence, I finally found a companion, and in your presence, I'm finally even seeing myself with clarity. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In your presence, I can finally know even who I am. Think about that. That's deep and profound, that a marriage has the capacity to be so much more than just finding a sexual counterpart. It's finding someone who allows you to discover more of yourself and allows you to then help them to discover who they really are as well. There's this deep partnership and companionship, friendship. Remember, God made a helper comparable, compatible, a counterpart, or some scholars would say, opposite even, they'd use the word, to Adam. The comment here about compatibility and an opposite is not merely, though, about anatomy. It's a statement about God's intention, his intentional design deficiencies, finding their match in another person. For Adam, finding his match in Eve. And it's poetic and beautiful what God does in that moment, where God reaches into man and from man creates a woman which does not create a 1A and 1B. Like, this this does not at all mean that Eve is less than Adam. It really means that they're of the same substance. They're of equal value. In fact, it's beautiful and poetic that it says that he does not take a bone from his head to create Eve so that she would rule over him, nor is it a bone from his foot so that he would walk all over her. Instead, it's a bone, a rib, something from his side, under his arm and close to his his heart. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Men and women are equal in value, undoubtedly, both made in the image of God. But we're not equivalent. We're not the same in role. 
the same in value, but we have distinct roles and identities that each of us carry. And that is a dangerous thing, I realize, even to say in our culture. But it, none of that even speaks of inferiority and superiority. It's just saying there's a distinction and a difference. There's a massive cultural war taking on, even without the church getting involved in the squabble right now, uh, in our modern culture here in America, between even groups like the, the trans movement and then a feminist movement are at war over these same exact topics, where a trans movement is saying, no, it has nothing to do with anatomy, it has nothing to do with even how you're born, it has nothing to do with science, that someone can self-define their gender and they can have it be fluid constantly. But then you have a feminist movement that's saying, no, that is an absolute opposition to what we're saying, that we should be proud of the things that uniquely make us women. And so for you to say that is to de humanize us once again and to make women less than. And so we're not going to agree with that at all. The culture itself is conflicted. And so if we're looking towards the culture to help us understand, are there any real distinctions between men and women that will ever be changing and always conflicting? But scripture makes it clear there are differences. That does not mean, though, that men should uh, abuse any of their strength or stature like we've seen since the earliest of human civilizations. In fact, in Genesis, when it introduces you to the namer and the helper, the two different titles and jobs that are given. Now, don't think helper of like, she's the help, the little wifey in the kitchen. The helper in scripture is a title given to God, that God is our help, our ever-present help in time of need. The helper possesses something that the one in need of help lacks. That's what a woman, that's what my wife is for me. She possesses things that I lack. So for her to be my counterpart, it says nothing about superiority, inferiority. God himself is my ever-present help in time of need. He has resources I don't have, but I need. And so I love him and respect him for that. I love my wife and respect her for that very same reason. But in Genesis chapter 3, it introduces sin to the world and says what's going to happen now is that a man's going to be very prone to trying to force and impose his will on creation. And, and, and he's going to have to kind of always constantly strive and from the sweat of his brow work so hard to do that. The problem is sin has so distorted the role that a man has been given that we've even superimposed that on society. We've even superimposed those things even then on our own families and on women in general. But Genesis 3 called the shot and said, this is how it's going to go down. Genesis 3 also said of women that they would yield and their desire would be for their husband, that they would yield and lean into, in a sense, an over-dependence upon even men or the man involved in their life. What I'm telling you is that the Bible isn't the one that set these things up and said, hey, I'm su these are super aggressive ideas. No, the Bible said that this is how God intended it to be. Here's how sin is going to distort this. We're seeing the distortion of it play out in front of us even still today. So sorry, none of that was in my notes, so I'm in trouble now. <clears throat> One facet of this truth and reality, I believe, if we're equal in value and yet distinct in role, is that we carry unique aspects of the nature and the character of God. That's what we just talked about. Remember, God, some of the terms that he'll use, he takes on what we would classify as masculine terms and descriptions, and others would be what we'd classify as more feminine things, like a nursing mother. And so we together, we pair, and we present a whole look at the nature and the character of God. But the other aspect of this is that we are distinctly different in identity and role, and that we can then, as just a pair, as a partnership, we can pair beautifully. Because the goal of a marriage is really about a deep friendship developing between a husband and a wife. 
And so Lindsay will become in my life a tool, an instrument that God will use to develop me into more of a well-balanced version of myself as she rubs the rough, the rough edges off, or, or better stated, as our rough edges together collide against each other's and naturally uh, go to work and begin to rub those rough edges off. See, Eve was, was made and given to complement and complete what was lacking in Adam. And that's not a statement at all about superiority or inferiority. Okay, so think about this. The purpose of marriage, it's companionship and completeness. But what about the process? Okay, if that's what it is, well, then how do we grow into companionship? What does scripture teach us? So this is the, the fourth thing out of the handful of them, and that's the process of marriage. The process of marriage, if you look at Ephesians 5, which we read, the process of marriage is going to be self-sacrificial love. The process of marriage is self-sacrificial love, or you might even say that it's, it's mutual submission. This is the longest section of scripture in the New Testament that gives instruction for marriage, Ephesians 5 is. But you need to know that this comes on the heels of a statement about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And after explaining what that would look like in the life of the believer and talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it talks then about the byproduct of the Spirit's work in your life of unity and love and fighting for peace. And then it talks about a willingness, the Spirit's work in my life is a willingness to submit myself one to another in fear of God. Now, now, when you choke on the idea of fear of God, I submit to other people because I'm afraid of what God will do to me. That's not the imagery. In fact, the psalmist would write that because of your great forgiveness, I fear you. That doesn't make any sense. Because God forgave me, I'm afraid of him. You know, the idea is I revere you because of my deep love and adoration for you. Because you have forgiven me, this is my response is that I, I have love and adoration and a heart of worship for you. To fear is to be in reverential awe. So here, think about this. In verse 21, Ephesians chapter 5, submit to one another in the reverence, deep reverence of God, out of worship, a heart of worship for what God has done for you. In our Bibles, there are section breaks, chapter breaks, headings, numbers, and things that are given to help us to easily be able to sort through our Bible. But you need to know in the original ancient manuscripts, there were no verses, there were no chapters, there was just a long-running text. There were not section breaks like you have in your modern Bible. It's, it's not a problem that they're there, but they're not inspired by God. They're just helpful to us, so that this seems a little less overwhelming for all of us. So some of your Bibles begin the section on marriage with verse 21. Some of them will start with verse 22. Regardless of whether or not it starts there, though, it crescendos, something crescendos. All of the lead-up of Ephesians is crescendoed in talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer, and one of the outworkings of his powerful work in my life is a willingness, a capacity to submit myself one to another. So that's the top of the mountain. And then he gives an illustration. Well, what would that look like inside of a marriage? And then he'll talk about what would that look like inside of a workplace? And what will that look like inside of a home with children? But his first example that he uses is what would it look like, exhibit A, where we could do this inside a marriage? So we need to read the instruction that Ephesians 5 gives us under that heading of not just, well, in Ephesians 5, it tells a wife to submit and to trust her husband, respect him, and it tells a husband to love her, wash her, cherish her, but it begins by telling each of them to take a heart posture, now think about this, a heart posture of submission to each other. 
Submission, I realize culturally, is a very, very scary word for us. The reason it's scary is that we understand submission means to place myself under someone. Think of that imagery. Submission means to place myself under someone. My fear is that if I do that, who's going to look out for me? That's the fear. If I submit myself, who's going to care about my voice anymore? If I submit myself, who's going to look out for my best interests? It's a scary place if only one side of a marriage is asked to do that. It's a really beautiful, safe place, though, if both commit to doing that. Because if Lindsay and I will commit to do that with each other, to place your needs, Lindsay, above my own, and she's saying, Trevor, I'm willing to submit to you and place your needs above my own, that's not just a lessening one under the other. That's a constant building where my, my needs, my desires are all of a sudden being elevated and valued and cared for, loved by someone else. And then I'm doing the same for her. So our marriage has this way to build beauty and love and trust if we're willing to commit to do this. But it's a scary prospect to do this. But it's far less scary if it's two people doing it together. You know, years ago when Lindsay and I were first married, I remember the two of us sitting in a service where someone was talking about marriage and teaching about submission. And the guy gave an illustration. He said, if we're understanding this correctly, wives, if your husband comes home tomorrow, home from work early on a Monday, and you go out to meet him because you're totally thrown off. Why am I hearing you pull up? It's 2 p.m. on a Monday. You should be at work. And you walk out, and he's not in his car. Instead, he sold his car. He sold the house. He sold all your possessions, and he's on a motorcycle. And he says, "Hun, I sold it all, and I quit my job, and we're going across the country starting today on the back of this motorcycle. He says, wives, your answer is? The room was pretty quiet. The guy said, your answer is yes. Now, I'll tell you, listening to that, I thought it was nuts and kind of ducked down a little, like, I don't know what's going to happen. The reason I thought it was nuts is he communicated that his wife and his mind is about the equivalent of saddlebags. And I don't think that that's the way that we are meant to see one another, even from the beginning of Genesis itself, both in the image of God. And if we're... we're committed to mutual submission, then it's not sit down, shut up, and get in line. In fact, think about this. Headship is one of the issues that's brought up here, and it's an important one, that, that the man is the head of the body. That is not given because women are more gullible. It's not given because women are more emotionally volatile. It's not given for any, any reason like that. I've heard reasons like that given. It's given because God gave it, and seemingly, if I had to guess it, why, I'd look at the garden itself when God first gave that responsibility to Adam. He gave it after Adam shirked his responsibility and blamed his wife. And then God was like, cool, so now I'm going to hold you accountable from now on. You're responsible. Headship, though, is not something that I can demand according to Ephesians 5. Headship is not something that I can even take and force on Lindsay. Headship is something that I earn. Headship is something I receive. I'm instructed to love her, not to forcefully take and suppress her and, and take my position as the head of this home and I put my foot down. I will earn that by loving her. That's what Ephesians teaches me. Not that I can take it and all of a sudden uh, enforce it, but instead that it's something that she will give and entrust to me. You see, Ephesians does refer to the husband as the head of this new entity. 
But the way that the head will lead is by demonstrating a self-sacrificial love for his bride, like the love that Jesus had for us. The husband then, if it's like Jesus, then I am to initiate our relationship with selfless love. If it is a mutual submission and I'm like, we're in a standstill and one of us needs to die to ourselves and place the other one's needs before their own, I'm to take the position of Jesus and say, and I'll do that first. We love him because he first loved us. The wife is then called to respond with the willingness to respect and trust her husband. And so for us in our marriage, the more confident Lindsay has become and and the more confident she feels in my love for her and in my willingness to put her needs before my own, the more she trusts me and the more that she naturally trusts even my leadership in our home. And, And when she trusts me, the more confident I feel. In Lindsay's trust and love for me, it makes me naturally love her even more. God created and designed these things to create this beautiful loop of love if we'll stay engaged with one another. He created it so that there would be this always growing romance present. Now, track with me before we move on from the idea of headship. There is, I believe here, a scriptural case for the husband having, in a sense, a third vote. That sometimes in life, the, the two of a husband and wife will sit at a table and have to work through an issue, and someone else needs to, or someone needs to break the tie. And again, I don't think that's because, well, women are easily deceived or they're emotionally volatile. Those things, I think, are unfortunate that they're voiced. It's just the way that God declared it to be. And in our marriage, it's happened less than a handful of times. But here's how some of that's played out. Years ago, when we were still dual income and before we had children, Lindsay had a long-term lease of a small sedan that was very expensive. And I felt like as we were looking ahead to her no longer working once we had kids for a season that it would be better for us to get into a purchase situation of a larger car, an SUV, for our family. And if we could get it paid for now before we go down to one income, I thought it made sense. For Lindsay, every time we talked about it, and it it was calm talk, but we did talk about it a lot. For her, it overwhelmed her because she knew that the payment would go up each month. The more we went back and forth, the more we both felt like pretty confident in where we sat on this. And so in the end, I told Lindsay, well... If you feel that way, I don't want you to ever think that I'm going to force you into a situation that makes you feel just very overwhelmed or that makes you feel insecure in my commitment to you. And so if you feel this strongly, and she said, well, no, hang on, wait a second. You're not going to let me decide this because then I I carry the the weight of responsibility of this. No, 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 you're going to take the responsibility of this one. Because she knew that we were making a choice either way. The choice not to make a choice was choosing against stepping forward and making this decision about the car. And so then I just said, well, Lindsay, I need you to trust me on this one. Are you willing to do that? She said, yes. That was what headship can look like just in a practical situation. It's so many of you guys, if you have a young family, this last year, the school year kicked off and you're looking at each other going, do we homeschool again or what do we do? Do we put them back in school? How do we feel about this? It's the two of you sitting together to not make a decision or to delay a decision was making a decision. In the end, you're Maybe you weren't homeschooling if you didn't make a decision. You're keeping your kids at home, though. Either way, they might not get any school, but you are making a decision. Sometimes in a life and in a marriage, you have to make a decision. And I think that here, that there is, a, there is something here being taught, a scriptural case for the husband getting a third vote in those situations. But I'll say again, headship is not something that's demanded or taken. It's something that's given. And, and I don't take it. I receive it. I don't demand it. I earn it with Lindsay. So the foundation of marriage, it's a covenant. The priority of marriage, we reorder our loves. Remember, we leave our father and mother to cleave. 
And then the purpose of marriage, it's about companionship, friendship, deep friendship together, and about completeness, completing the image of God for the world to see a more balanced look at who God is. And the process of marriage, it's self-sacrifice. It's this mutual love and commitment, mutual submission even. Remember, marriage is not the end, though. It's the means to an end. The end is the world seeing Jesus more clearly in us as a pair than they could ever see with Trevor with all those rough edges that need still to be worn off or counterbalanced by my spouse. If it's just the means to an end, then track with me. I think this is something that we, the church, in our present age have really done a disservice to with those specifically who are single. Because I think what we've made marriage, it is a gift and a good gift, but we've made it the ultimate end. And I think that's kind of a mistake. And I also think it's damaging and hurtful to folks who are not married. I think that someone can be content and happy and fulfill the call of God in their life while still being single. In fact, it's something Paul will write to the church in Corinth about, encouraging people, maximize your season of singleness rather than despising it. Even if it's just a season, serve Jesus well. Listen, if marriage is for companionship and friendship, then if you're single, just hear me say this. If it's for companionship and friendship, if you're single, don't date someone you wouldn't be friends with. Even if they're good looking, even if they're influential, even if they represent a form of security or possess some surface level thing that's deeply appealing to you because God's designed a marriage so that you find your greatest friend inside the safety of covenantal love. So develop a friendship with someone where it's a safe space for you to be yourself and where they are gracious enough, a gracious enough Jesus-loving person who can be then a part of the process of Jesus shaping you into his image. Remember, this is a gift of companionship and it's the means of God making me holy. This is one of his tools in doing that. So single, single people, I would just encourage you in light of those things, that it's a good practice to try to lean into, to learn how to be happy and satisfied with who you are as a person in Christ before rushing to become a partner to some other person, which is not me beating you up for having a good desire in your heart. If God's given you a desire to be married, I think it's a great desire for you to have and not for you to be bummed about. But your comfort level with your own identity as a person as a person, should not be contingent upon having someone else present in your life to tell you that you're lovely or lovable. Let Jesus do that. My hope is that our church community does that for people too. It's one of the things I think that home groups can do for people is that it puts people in a family and around a table setting. So that even for single people who say, there is a void and a vacancy in my life that I'd love to see God meet. There is a longing there. I'm hoping that we can be at least a part of the affirming voice of God to say that you belong here at this table and you're welcomed here because you are lovely and lovable. If you're single, hear me say that you shouldn't walk out of here defeated or thinking that there will always be this incompletion in you because you aren't married. Don't think that because marriage is only an analogy of something else, remember? Of the great marriage between Jesus and his church. In the same way that God made man in the image of himself, God made marriage in the image of his intended union with creation. And he is the great sanctifier. He is the completer. He is your helpmate. 
He's the one who, even in a marriage, is working through the spouse in order to accomplish his work, but his work in you is not contingent upon you needing to have a spouse present in your home or life. His work in you is contingent upon your willingness to engage with him. Much like inside a marriage, his work can be short-circuited by a spouse who disengages with that process and pulls back from their partner in the same way the process of God working in your life, if you're a single person, can be short-circuited and broken off if you disengage because of distrust that's developed because you have unmet expectations. And you say, Jesus, I can't engage with you anymore because my heart's still empty and broken because of the void that's there because you haven't yet connected me with a partner. You need to choose with vulnerability to re-engage with him in those moments. Okay, now track with me. If you're a married person, if marriage is for companionship and friendship, then to you married people who might be sitting here thinking in the back of your mind, you know, we didn't really get married for friendship. Like with the thought of like, it's friendship with romance to ice the cake. We got married for romance. We got married because of sexual compatibility. We got married because it worked in maybe other areas. And we're yet to find real deep friendship inside our marriage. If you're thinking that, well, then the way you'll find it and begin to experience it is by beginning to engage with each other in the way that God prescribes here. In Ephesians 5, he uses the metaphor of a body. It's in Genesis 2, he refers to it as one flesh. And here he says, gives a negative and a positive form of instruction of what you are to do in this relationship. So please don't miss this. This is important. He says that there in this relationship should be a cleansing. And I'll just tell you, that feels like a negative thing to me. But then there's a positive thing, and that is where in, in here, in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, and you will also nourish and cherish. So there's a cleansing, feels like a negative. The positive is a nourish and cherishing that takes place. These are things that a real depth of relationship gives someone access to. Think with me. Cleansing feels like a negative thing because... It's saying here that your spouse is given permission to see and address the brokenness in your life. They get an all-access pass to all your heartache, to your insecurities, to your temptation and sin, to your brokenness and fear, to all that you are. Think about the significance of what's being said and taught here. None of us want to clean ourselves in any way, shape, or form in the public eye. We choose to clean ourselves in private. And the idea of then inviting someone else to publicly get eyes on my messiness, to invite them even to help with the process of being cleansed is in some ways a terrifying and traumatic image to just slow down and think about. And it's what we're being instructed to do with our spouse. And it feels humiliating. It's humbling because it's so vulnerable. But if I choose vulnerability and allow Lindsay to see my brokenness, if I let her be exposed to my heartache, to my anger, to my perfectionism, to my own insecurities. If I allow her to do more than just see those things, but I give her permission to help wash and cleanse those things, then she, with gentleness, can say, Trevor, you're being a perfectionist again. And it's hard on you and leaves you defeated. But it's also hard on the rest of us, and it's pushing us away. You're angry again, Trev. What are the roots of that anger, though? Why do you feel this way? How can I help you? Your insecurity, Trev, is what's keeping you from slowing down and taking a break. You can't keep pushing like this. It's not good for you. Trev, your pride is showing. You need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. 
but it seems like you're losing that tendency to invite someone in, to let them see the messy, broken areas and allow them to be a part of the process of not just saying that they're there, but being a part of the process of wiping them down is what we're instructed here to do. It's a very vulnerable thing. It's not just that negative side, it's a positive side of nourishing and cherishing at the same time. It's discovering what it is to rebuild them, what restores them. It's leaning into what their love language is, how they're wired to receive love and care and affirmation. It's, it's how you meet their brokenness with gentleness. It's how you soothe their insecurity and fears with affirmation and love. It's how you comfort and support, how you affirm and love each time their brokenness is exposed and needing to be cleaned. We're not just in each other's lives to point out each other's messiness. We're there to embrace and comfort, to affirm and love each other when that brokenness surfaces. This is hard. But this is where we become like Jesus in our marriage. Because in Jesus, we are fully known and yet fully loved. And in covenantal love, the promise is not just, I'm expressing my love that I feel for you today and saying, this is our act of love, we got married. No, it's a promise of future love. It's a promise that I'll continue to choose to love you. And with that choice and action, I'm believing that my feelings will follow. In a safe space like that, where all of my brokenness can be seen by my spouse, but at the same time she can say, and I still love you and I'm still here and not leaving. That becomes a healing agent in my life. In the same way that, that Jesus does those same things, he's now doing them through this beautiful gift he calls a marriage. It says that they were naked and unashamed in Genesis in the sight of their spouse. I think for us, it can be the same way, that we can be vulnerable and open about all that we are. The idea is that nothing is held back, that nothing is out of bounds or off territory, that they have access to all of it, that that's where we can get inside a marriage. You might have to reframe your spouse not just as the person you go to, if you're saying, if, if you're saying, Trevor, when we got married, this was not how we viewed it. We just married because it, it made sense. We just married because of the spark that was there. We didn't look for deep friendship, and so we've never found it. Well, maybe you need to reframe your spouse, not just as the person that you go to for meal prep or financial stability or to binge watch something with or for sex. And you have to begin to lean on them in new ways. Rather than having them for that, and I have friends to share my insecurities, my hurts, and my fears, and everything of real value with. I have friendship outside of my home. I think we've got to reframe things and begin then with vulnerability to lean on your spouse for some of those things. And I think this is huge. If you feel that your spouse is incapable or unwilling to do that for you, then start doing it for them first. You initiate it. If you feel like, gosh, I'd love to have that, I don't think that they're capable or willing, though, to be that for me, then you start the process by being that for them. That's what submission looks like. So hear me on the implication of this. It means that when I'm frustrated and faced with my spouse's brokenness and messiness and selfishness, I can look at them and think, there must be someone better than this, less selfish than this, less hurtful than this, easier to love than this, and there is and it's my spouse, as they continue to grow and develop. And that is what I committed to when I married them, to being a part of the process of that growth and development. That's when you and I, we, whew, we say a prayer, we roll up our sleeves, and with the help and grace of God, we begin loving them again covenantally, unconditionally. 
It's the foundation of marriage. It's a covenant. We're all done. The priority of marriage, we reorder our loves. The purpose of marriage, it's companionship and completeness. The process of marriage, it's going to grow through self-sacrificial love, through mutual submission. The power of marriage, it's the gospel. The gospel is not merely news arriving of what Christ has done for me. It's more than that. As I receive it, it lets loose the power of God to transform my life. The gospel impacts my ability to forgive and to move forward in love because we love because he first loved us. The powerful truth and reality of the love that I receive from Jesus enables me to love self-sacrificially because he's already loved me first. The comfort that I can give, the support that I can give is something I can give because the God of all comfort has comforted me so that I can comfort someone else in their moment of affliction. The gospel is the power of marriage that I can forgive even when I feel wronged because I have been forgiven of so much. And when I choose not to love, when I choose not to, to forgive or not to comfort and support, I have to stop and ask, what gospel am I believing and preaching to myself? Because in Jesus' gospel, he, asked, he was asked, how many times should we forgive? And he said, 70 times 7. Before they could do the math, he told a story about a man who was so deeply indebted to someone else and was forgiven of that massive debt and yet went and shook down someone else who barely owed him anything at all. By comparison, the debt was so small by comparison, how could someone who has been forgiven of so much be unwilling to forgive? Can I tell you my experience in walking with Jesus is that because I am loved much and forgiven much and have been given so much compassion and grace and patience and comfort, I'm capable now. I have the capacity to give those things as I receive them. That I become not just a recipient of those things, but a conduit for those things, even in a marriage. The gospel is the power for these things. I think marriage is a huge gift, but as I told you last week, I think a good marriage is both a gift and an accomplishment because it's something God gives, but it's something we nurture. And if you're a married person, I think it's great to slow down and talk through these things, even if just in form of review. Or if you're a single person, remember today that you're loved and valuable and you don't need someone else, anyone else, other than God himself who expressed your love and value on a cross. You're freed from a need to, to find a way to define yourself based on someone else's voice telling you that, because his voice already defines you. Jesus, thank you for the gift that you give us of your love and your grace. Jesus, thank you that this is just a picture. This is a mystery, Paul said, a mysterious picture of your commitment to your bride, the church. That you are like a bride in your commitment, or you're like a bridegroom in your commitment to your bride. You're like a bridegroom even in your love for your bride, but you are also like a bridegroom in your excitement for your bride. As the prophet said, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so our God rejoices over you. Jesus, today we remember you, the one who has loved us, first loved us, and we respond with love to you. And Jesus, we're asking that you would shape our lives to be more like you. And Jesus, for those of us who are married, we're telling you that we're open to you using our marriage as a tool to accomplish just that, to shape our lives.
Jesus, I pray for individuals here who are without a spouse, whose hearts are heavy, and this topic the last couple of weeks uh, has been hard for them. God, I pray breathe life and comfort and hope and joy and peace in their hearts. Uh, For those who have lost a spouse, Father, I pray for them, comfort them, and the memories that come up even today, may some of them be sweet and not just sorrowful. And Father, for those of us who are actively married today, we're asking for hope and joy and peace for restoration. We're asking for great things, for our marriages to become what you intend for them to be. More than just cohabitation, but deep companionship, beautiful friendship. And that it would be the tool that you would use to shape us, Jesus, more into your image. And may we together, as pairs, present a beautiful portrait of a loving and gracious God to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.